anti-racism is an action. You know, it's work. It's not not being racist. X-Ray. And welcome to the Beer Vana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. We're joining you today from our respective homes. In fact, hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. In fact, I am, well, my home is kind of a, a musical rooms today. Uh, I'm actually uh, uh, coming to you from my younger son's bedroom because my younger son is doing school today from the office, our house, our home office. And my wife, who teaches third grade, she's taken over the basement. So I'm in a, in a, in a new location. This podcast is the third string uh, priority. <laughs> exactly. I was I was eyeing the broom closet, and then I realized, oh no, wait a minute, my son's bedroom is going to be available. Uh, he's got these. Uh, I think this is a popular thing amongst the youngsters. He's got these uh, colored lights, you know, um, uh, Wi-Fi controlled colored lights. So I've got like purple and green and like orange going on here. So it's kind of groovy. Well, that's. Better than what I have here in the <laughs> the northernmost of the home studios, uh, which is just a regular house uh, on a on a cloudy, rainy Portland fall day, which is very nice. Yeah, fall has has hit like almost precisely on time. Sort of the first day of official fall came, and basically it's fall now. <laughs> That's right. The rain came. With the it. wind, the rain, the leaves, everything. Luckily, there's been a lot of rain. The fires yeah. are now getting under control, and the smoke has blown out of the valley. But for about, what, nine days, we were just sucked in with the worst air ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was bad. It was I've, bad. I've, so, been, yes. I've been through something like that like for a day or two, but never for nine days straight. That was tough. Yeah, it was really tough. Anyway, you're Jeff Allworth. Yeah, that's let's. Hey, we're we're doing a podcast here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess we'll catch up some other time, Jeff. <laughs> let's get <laughs> let's get to business. Uh, you, my friend, are Jeff Allworth. You are the author of several books, including Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and The Widmer Way. That's me, and you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University, which I take it is is in session or about to begin. <laughs> yeah, being back in session. Or <laughs> this is this is a slightly funny story. Uh, uh, my older son is uh, off to the University of Oregon, the other right. the other big state university, and there's classes start on Monday. And because forever the two universities have had essentially the same calendar, I just assume that that's when my school started. Uh, I'm only teaching online. I'm not even uh, as distinct from remote. Remote means that you have synchronous live component. Uh, my, I was always scheduled just to teach an online class, which is asynchronous, so people can do it whenever they have the time. Uh, so it doesn't matter that much, but it turned out that uh, school started two days ago. And I realized, oh but, I, but I did realize this on time. I, I, on Monday morning, I was like, okay, I better, I better get everything going online, uh, thinking I had a week. And then that's when I realized I had actually only uh, two, two days. So it's a good thing. Good thing I checked. And, and this is how we know you have tenure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also because you're just so disconnected from the school right now. Our school uh, is still largely closed. Like I'm not allowed to access my office without special permission and things. So, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I do feel a bit dis disconnected from from the world. I've had a couple of Zoom meetings already, though. So I know this, the the term has started because the meetings have started. That's how I really know. Especially when you're old and have tenure like me. That's right. Anyway, perhaps we should move to the uh, the topic at hand. Indeed, 
And a kind of exhilarating topic it is. Yeah, this is this is maybe the biggest get ever for us. Today, we're very excited to welcome a true luminary to the show. Garrett Oliver has been the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewing for nearly a quarter century. He's written books, judged beer, and been an ambassador for American Craft Brewing. We'll talk about his background, but also his newest project, the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling, with a goal to fund technical education and advance the careers of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the brewing and distilling industries. So that's super exciting. Yes. Kudos to you. Uh, well, thanks to Garrett for agreeing to do this. Uh, yeah. We're, we're excited to have him. We'll, we'll talk about his new project for sure, uh, but we'll also, uh, I hope, have a chance to grill him a little bit about his fascinating life, which began in the 1980s as a brewer in New York City and uh, has been sort of at the heart of craft brewing for most of the, the history of craft brewing. So he's a really fascinating guy. Yeah. And Brooklyn Brewing Company is really quite a famous brewery around the world. They, they maybe partly because they're on the East Coast, they got into Europe early and you see Brooklyn beer everywhere. Yeah, they actually have, and we, we may ask them about this, they have a relationship with Carlsberg and a brewery or something maybe uh, in Europe. I don't know. Anyway, we'll ask about that. We'll because, find out. <laughs> yeah. I obviously don't remember very well. All right. So we will get to Garrett uh, Toot Sweet, but first... In the news, this news was expected, but for folks around here, it doesn't make it any easier. On September 18th, the U.S. Department of Justice gave AB InBev the go-ahead to fully acquire Craft Brew Alliance. The big brewery on North Russell is no longer locally owned. That's the Craft Brew Alliance's Woodmer, Red Hook, and Kona. And Woodmer, of course, is one of the granddaddies of the Portland brewing scene. That's right. And, and for people in Portland... Craft Brew Alliance isn't really a thing. It's not a brewery. It's a it's an umbrella name. Right. Um, and when you go to the place that is Craft Brew Alliance, it's Widmer. You know, it's just the brewery that says Widmer yeah. on the side. And it has been Widmer um, at that location since 1996, I think. Big brewery, big, beautiful brewery, kind of always been at the heart of uh, Portland. And so it is, um, it's bad that... <laughs> It's no longer locally owned. Kurt and Rob no longer are no longer the owners. So yeah, it's a transition. That is a transition. That is sad. I hope that perhaps it can breathe new life into uh, into the brewery. Maybe new and exciting stuff will go on, and maybe not. But fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I worry a little bit because the focus is so much on the Kona brand. Yes. And, uh, the, the Widmer brand is, you know, at least when it was uh, still in the hands, uh, independent hands, the the people had a sentimental connection to Widmer um, and a reason to try to keep it alive. It's a big, important brand. It's certainly Widmer Hefeweizen is one of the most important beers ever brewed in Oregon. And whether Anheuser-Busch has a commitment to that legacy, uh, we will see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all we can do. That's all we can do. Um, in the second item, we are sad to hear the news that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died recently after uh, her tremendous life in law. She was an inspiration, certainly to me, I assume to you as well. Mm -hmm. One thing that may have escaped your notice, however, was a case she argued in front of the Supreme Court in 1976. At issue was an Oklahoma law that allowed 18-year-old women to buy 3.2% beer, but prohibited men from buying it until they were 21, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Uh, very weird. Yeah. 
In fighting for gender equality, uh, Ginsburg cleverly argued laws that discriminated against men playing a long game that would eventually benefit women, far more often the objects of discrimination. In this case, it worked. She won the case seven to two. Rest in peace, uh, Justice Ginsburg. So wait a minute. was the judgment that 18-year-old that men could also buy 3.2% beer or that 18-year-old women could no longer buy 3.2% beer? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I think it was that men could buy 3.2 because it was 1976. So yeah, it was still I presume. Early. Yeah, I presume too. And I should have should have looked that up and anticipated your query on that point. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. The, the key point here is that uh, she was a smart woman and understood that if she had, and this is with Supreme Court cases, this is how you do it, right? You you pick up cases that advance the law in a way that is most advantageous to your position. So people spend a lot of time trying to pick cases right. that are that are especially good in that. And right. uh, she was so clever that she was like, you know, I'm really into uh, gender discrimination. Women are getting a raw deal here. But instead of uh, championing some of these cases that these old white dudes on the bench are not going to be super excited about, I will get a few cases in the book uh, arguing for men's rights. And that was clever. Yes, indeed. You know, uh, she is Cornell University's one of their most prized alumnus. I did not know that. Yes, and and what what the reason I bring bring it up is because there was a thing uh, recently about her dorm room. Apparently, some of the like the real Ivies, if people would say, like the Princetons, Yales, and things, they they preserve the rooms of super famous alumni. Cornell doesn't, so Cornell, so her dorm room has been repurposed into like a, a broom closet. <laughs> oh my god! And so there's apparently students were like leaving little memorials to her in her old room, <laughs> her old room dorm room, but now it's just like a, a utility closet. Uh, so the indignity, the indignity. Cornell should get its act together. The other prized alumni is uh, Anthony Fauci, who's a medical school alum. So, huh. uh, well, and, and for our listeners who may not follow this podcast very closely, we should we should know note that you got your PhD at Cornell, which is why this is interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's 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 why I know because I get these like alumni newsletters and things. Okay, well, now it's time to turn to our main topic. So today we welcome Garrett Oliver to the show. Garrett got started in his native New York as a brewer at the Manhattan Brewing Company in 1989. In 1994, he was hired by Brooklyn Brewery and in 1996 became their brewmaster. In addition to brewing, Garrett has written books, notably The Brewmaster's Table, as well as editing The Oxford Companion to Beer. He has won many awards and honors and has been a tireless champion of American brewing both here and abroad. He's also a bit of a fashion icon, rare in the world of brewing. Garrett, welcome to the show. So, <laughs> uh, all, 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 all of those I will claim to be accurate, uh, except for when I joined uh, Brooklyn Brewery, I was, you know, I joined as brewmaster in 94. Okay. So, the thing that happened in 96 is that the brewery uh, uh, in, in Brooklyn actually opened. So, you know, I, but I was brewmaster from the time I joined in 1994. And uh, my first beer for Brooklyn Brewery, Black Chocolate Stout, uh, was released that same year. So uh, that's the only the only change. And I will sometimes add, if you think it's relevant for the for your audience, you know, the James Beard Award, since in my part of the world that's like the Oscar, and you know, you basically don't not mention it. Um, right. You bet. But, 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 but yeah, but if you have a uh, but if you have an audience that doesn't know what the James Beard Award is, then there's not much point. <laughs> I think I think they mostly know. Um, we, you know, I have a beer audience, but beer and beer and food are pretty close together. Uh, fortunately, now. 
So I hope they know. Anyway, uh, it is a big deal. Uh, so congratulations on that. We're here really to talk about the Michael Jackson Foundation ultimately, but since we've never spoken to you on the show, I thought it would be great. You are really kind of a legend in the industry, and it would be great to get a little bit more of your background before we, we jump right into that. You know, I was doing a little bit of reading and research. I was looking at Tom Acatelli's book, and he gave you kind of a nice pre-beer biography. And it was pretty fascinating. I mean, you had you had quite a life before you ever got into beer. Well, first of all, you know, I I went to Boston University for college. You know, my degree is in broadcasting and film. You know, and while I did not go into the film industry, I, I later did work for HBO for a number of years. You know, and when I moved to London in 1983, right after getting out of school, you know, I worked that summer for HBO for original programming. And then when I moved to London, my intention was to work for HBO in London. They were opening up their, you know, their London office. When that didn't work out because their deal was delayed, you know, I ended up as a stage manager for a place called uh, University of London Union, known as Yulu, which was a concert hall. When I was at Boston University, I had been in charge of all entertainment for the university, which is, you know, pretty big place. So we had maybe 30,000 students or something. So I ran clubs and uh, whatever else. So I knew how to run sound and work a stage. And what year? And so was I this? ran uh, 1983. Okay. Pretty, so, pretty good time to be in London. There was a lot happening musically there. It, a lot happening. We had some great bands. I, I put on Cocteau Twins in London. I mean, I tell people, you know, I joke with, uh, you know, the, the new kids in brewing. I always tell them that I'm 400 years old. You know, I, <laughs> I, I've, I, I've always been here like Wolverine. You'll see pictures of me from the Civil War. And, you know, and then you'll, then 100 years from now, you'll see other pictures of me. Yeah, I mean, I took the Ramones bowling once. I put on R.E.M. as the opening band for the English beat. Wow. You know, yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of music connections and some of them still continue, even if uh, tangentially. But yeah, I, I moved to London. Uh, I was there for a year, you know, with a work visa. And at the same time as I was stage managing beers and, you know, traveling a little bit from there, I discovered this stuff called beer, which I thought was the stuff that I had been drinking in college. And what I learned when I moved to Europe is, you know, in 1983 in the United States, basically the food world that we lived in was essentially the matrix. You know, when you went to the supermarket, you were fed a series of lies. Basically, almost everything that you saw there was a lie. You know, the cheese, the bread, you know, the beer, the ice cream, you know, everything was, you know, the vegetables. You know, people have an interesting memory of what the 80s were actually like, the 70s or 80s. So in their mind, if they went back to the supermarket, it looked something like today's supermarket. It didn't look anything like today's supermarket. I didn't see a stalk of broccoli, an actual stalk of broccoli, until I was in my 20s. Wow. And almost nobody who lived in a city did. I mean, vegetables were all frozen or canned. They were not on display for you to see. Ice cream was made of, you know, gums and all kinds of artificial ingredients and flavors. I don't know if you remember some of the old brands like Seal Test. You know, a whole big box of it was, you know, weighed about as much as, as, as a packet of cigarettes, you know, because there, was, <laughs> because, there was, because there was nothing in it. It was all puffed up with air 
and gums and artificial whatever. You know, supermarket white bread, which technically speaking is not bread. So when you look at the crust on, you know, a loaf of supermarket white bread from then, the reason why it's not crusty is that it was never in an oven. It's sprayed on food coloring. <laughs> so what we had basically in the United States was food facsimiles, you know, which were there to represent actual food. And when I went to Paris for the first time and went to a cheese shop, I mean, the whole idea of a cheese shop was just unimaginable. There were only four cheeses that I'd ever heard of, four or five cheeses. There was no cheese aisle or cheese area. There were five cheeses. And here was a place with 100 cheeses. And I felt the same way when I went to the pub. There were all these different beers. When I had been told there was basically different versions of the one beer, which was, you know, it was yellow, it was fizzy, and it either tasted like water or it tasted nasty, you know, one or the other. So right. I'll tell you the truth, you know, we drank, when I was in, in college, we drank Budweiser when we had money. And we almost never had any money, but if we had a little bit of money, we bought Budweiser because it didn't taste like anything. Because the stuff that we normally could afford tasted terrible. I mean, you know, you're talking about Mickey's Big Mouth. Uh, oh, yeah. Hoffen Reffer, also known as the Green Death. Knickerbocker. You know, there were all sorts of ghastly things, you know, out there waiting for the unsuspecting. So I fell in love with cask beer living in England. Then I went traveling all over Europe and I, you know, discovered beers in Czechoslovakia and beers in Belgium and beers in Germany and, and all these different flavors and aromas and everything else. And I got back to the United States in, you know, the next year. And I went to a bar and they said, Bud, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, Coors, Coors Light, Heineken. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, like I, 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 I can't live like this anymore. So I started brewing at home, you know, in 1985, not because I was interested in brewing beer. I just wanted to have some beer. And the only way to have any real beer was to make it yourself. And it was by doing it and then helping start a home brewing club. And this is way pre-internet. So, you know, it was certainly a, a different thing back then. By doing it, I fell in love with it. And from there, ended up as an apprentice uh, at Manhattan Brewing Company, which was being run by Mark Witte, who had been the senior brewer for Samuel Smith's in England. So my, my sense, based uh, on what you named the foundation, is that you had you travel over your, around Europe, but based, based on, on that connection and uh, this connection at Manhattan, and then even the beers that you brewed at, at Brooklyn, it was Eng English beers were kind of the touchstone for you. Is that true? They were the original touchstone for sure. And it was really, you know, through not only traveling, but then later through Michael's work uh, and other people's work that, you know, we were all introduced, you know, to these various, you know, other beers. I mean, to give you some idea of <laughs> how old I am, I spoke at an IPA conference run by the British Guild of Beer Writers. I spoke and served my beer in 1994. Now, in, in London, you know, this mm -hmm. is a big conference, you know, I still have the notes and the, you know, list of attendees from the conference and everything else. In 1994, IPA was a historical British beer style, which almost nobody brewed. Right. In any country. Now, today, of course, uh, IPA is considered a modern Amer American beer style, uh, which everybody brews, you know, and has no real definition. But the IPA that I brought 
you know, which was from Manhattan Brewing Company, it was called Rough Draft. It was a six and a half, seven percent bitter, highly aromatic, dry hopped IPA, which the British brewers who were in the room and all the great and good, you know, of the British beer scene were there. They all said, well, you know, that's very funny, but no one's ever going to drink anything like that. <laughs> uh, so it was interesting to see how, you know, the United States was instrumental, partially through Michael's work in bringing IPA, you know, back into the world in some real fashion and making it popular. But, you know, it was really later, it was Belgian beers. I mean, this kind of gets into a lot of sort of, uh, you know, you know, brewing, brewing history, if you like, but Brooklyn Brewery was entirely responsible for the craft beer market in New York City in, you know, the mid 90s to, you know, the early to mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a distribution arm. And basically, if it wasn't Sam Adams or Guinness, the only non-industrial beer that you could get in New York City all came through us. And we had over 200 labels and we had everything. So, you know, that is part of where Brewmaster's Table came from, that I had in our sample room hundreds of beers from all over the world, all the best stuff. And so we were brewing saisons and stuff like that by the, you know, by 1997, 1998, we were making mm. saison. Mm. When Brooklyn Brewery first opened in Brooklyn, for the first six months, all we made was vice beer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we kind of come, you know, and I come from a, a varied background, you know, in beer, where the British beers were certainly the original touchstones. And then we kind of spread out you know, over the next few years from there. When you were brewing in the 80s and 90s, that, that was a period when New York didn't really have a lot of brewing going on, but it, it is a historically important brewing city and the region is, you know, really important. I'm wondering, did you have a sense with the reemergence of Brooklyn as this, this local brewery uh, of your place in, in the history of American brewing? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, you're still a young guy and I don't know if one sees oneself in the scope of history uh, when you're you're young and getting started out, but um, you know it it really did connect reconnect the city and the the region to an important brewing tradition that had kind of died out there. Well, you know, I I had and still have a copy of the rare book, The Breweries of Brooklyn, which you know I think Steve Hindy also has a copy, which really recounts how important Brooklyn was you know, as a, you know, great brewing capital, you know, of, of not just the country, but the world, really. Right. Uh, you know, Brooklyn produced about 15% of all the beer in the United States in its heyday. And, you know, that's a ridiculous amount of beer. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, dwarfs most places that are, that have been mentioned as, you know, major beer capitals. So yes, New York was very important. You know, it was uh, as not only as a production center, but also New York State was, as you probably know, a major hop growing region, you know, and, uh, you know, the major hop growing region, you know, well before the West Coast. Right. Uh, you know, which was, uh, you know, wiped out by blight plus, you know, plus prohibition. So yes, you know, I think that, especially once I started to work for Brooklyn Brewery, you know, I took a great interest in the, you know, in the past of New York brewing. And today, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can find out just through older books. I mean, you know, I started 
pretty much pre-internet or just as the internet was starting to come along. And it wasn't that easy to do research back then. But I have old books, you know, old magazines like, you know, Brewer's Guardian, whatever else from the 20s and 30s. And it's amazing. Like you'll see, for example, advertisements for the New York Burtonizing Company, mm -hmm. you know, which, nice. which, was, which, was, which was in New York City and, and was there to provide brewing salts to brewers. There was so much pale ale and IPA being brewed in New York City. There was a company that was there just to provide brewing salts. That's very cool. Yeah. So, you know, I think that we have a, uh, when you look at what a major market uh, New York City was for behemoths like Bass and Guinness, Guinness was so popular in New York City, they actually built a Guinness brewery in New York in the 50s. And it didn't last all that long because they figured out that Americans and New Yorkers preferred that Guinness come from Ireland. This is always because of our, you know, international culture here. It's always been a major a major market for imported beers uh, in the days before craft beer. And, and uh, not to jump too far ahead, but uh, Brooklyn has once again become kind of a hotbed of brewing. So it's come full circle now. You can, you can uh, walk around Brooklyn and see, I don't know, two dozen breweries or something there. There seems like there's a new brewery opening all the time. Yeah, I mean, from my, from my front door, you know, walking for, say, 20 minutes in various directions, I could probably reach not in a row, but I can reach within 20 minutes, there's probably six, six or seven breweries that I could walk to in 20 minutes from my house. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. I was there a year ago and they did a walking tour of, of Brooklyn breweries and they're, it's really cool, it's, uh, uh, super vibrant. And it's become a place where you have individuating breweries. So you have breweries focused on farmhouse beers or lagers or hazies or whatever. And it's, uh, it's really cool. You know, you look at the parts of Brooklyn that are the brewing centers now, they are largely the parts that were brewing centers in the past, you know, like Bushwick, uh -huh. uh, you know, where, where you have, you know, you have Grimm and you have, you know, you, you, you have Interboro, uh, you have uh, 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 Evil Twin. You know, I mean, some of these places, there's so many of them, like some of them I haven't even been to. I've never been to Evil Twin. You know, they kind of opened, I think, as the pandemic, which is about to start. It's become hard to even know how many breweries are physically in the city unless you're, you know, a, a journalist chasing these things down. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> that's the case in many cities. And it, um, as I, I, we, everybody follows New York pretty closely, you know, for many reasons. And yeah, so we're, we're I've been aware of new breweries that are opening there. And the last time I was there, I met a brewer uh, who was about to open a brewery and I had hoped to go back and see it. We had a nice connection and um, yeah, so it, it, it's a cool city and I, it's nice that you you formed this kind of you know at Brooklyn Brewing you formed this kind of connective tissue that that uh, brought the old and the new together. Well, you know, there's a uh, you know there's I mean we go off on so many tangents you know because I've been around for so long, but people forget that this is like if you're around long enough you've already seen everything. This is actually like the third wave of beer in New York City. So the first wave, you know, you had, you know, the rise of the brew pubs. And so by, I'd say 1995, we had a dozen breweries in New York City. Mm -hmm. people, don't, people don't realize that now. Yeah. They forgot about a whole big chunk, you know, of the brewing history here. And so when people saw the kettles, you know, in the window, whatever else, they came running because this was the only place you could get decent beer. Then you had the rise of the beer bar. 
And eventually what happened is that the beer bar killed off the brew pub, you know, because, you know, you had one guy who's there and, you know, he's brewing his own beer. Maybe he's doing a nice job. He's making eight different beers. Another guy opens up down the block and says, I have 150 beers. I have all the best stuff from everywhere in the world. Well, one thing about New York City that's different than other parts of the country, actual New Yorkers, you know, couldn't care less about whether something is from New York. All they're interested in is, is it the best? You know, and and so if you're from Philly, it matters that the beer is from Philly. You want to support Philly. You wear Philly t-shirts. No New Yorker is ever going to be caught dead wearing a New York t-shirt. Right. Right. And you don't talk and you don't talk about being from New York. You just are. So Brooklyn Brewery never got like a big boost from being the local guys. And as the beer bars opened up, people said, well, we want to drink all this stuff, you know, and the local brewer was not in any way advantaged by being local, you know, because that's not, that's not a value of New Yorkers. They want the best. And these guys would open up and say, I have the best and everybody flocked there. So all the brew pubs closed. Then you have the modern kind of locavore idea, the new version of the DIY culture, together with the local culture, creates a demand for local, not only local, but even hyper-local, so that you know, it matters not just that something is from New York City, and it's not the New York City-ness, it's the fact that it's near your house. Right. And in fact, it becomes hyper-local to the extent that people are looking about their neighborhood brewery, mm-hmm. and where a brewery in the Bronx, which may be in the city, is not local. Right. You know, right. Staten Island, you know, Staten Island, not local. <laughs> Local is a place you can walk to within 20 minutes, which is a very different idea of local than many other people have. You know, I remember explaining to people in Philadelphia, they're like, well, you know, you're not a local beer. I'm like, I can get here on the train in like 55 minutes. And they're like, oh, that's not local. I'm like, well, you know, I I was like, well, it would take you longer to get to Victory Brewing. It's like, yeah, but they're from Pennsylvania. You're like, but they're, they're further away. (laughs) <laughs> you know, they're like no we're not we're not having it you're from new york you know yeah. it's like it's very it's 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 a uh, you know so there are different mindsets around the country but this is the third wave of of the the third modern wave of the new york beer culture that's fascinating you know, brew, brew pubs followed by beer bars and then of course every bar became a beer bar right right so you go to, gramercy tavern has 16 taps you know the 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 three tap bar that used to be a bar that pretty much died out right and then every bar showed up looking like you know uh the ginger man you know which was like one of the first modern beer bars in new york city that would look tremendously dated now that would just be an average bar that's not like a special bar that's just a bar (laughs) yeah you know you know with, with, with that list oh you got you know you got 60 70 beers everybody's got 60 70 beers so the beer bar then had to become this super geeky, extra specialized place, of which in most cities there are now only a few. You know, so in places like New York City, you'd find, you know, proletariat, you know, and, and you know, Spite and Dival and, and places like that, you know, but not many cities can support, you know, an ultra, you know, that many ultra geek bars because the beer culture is now so widespread.
Beer culture is, I, I'm, I'm sure you've traveled the world, you know this, beer, beer culture is always local and it's, it's wonderful to hear people describe what goes on in their, in their region because it is, you're right, it's always different. Um, every town has their own thing going on. Well, they do now. I remember when I wrote Brewmaster's Table, I mean, if you went to Florida, for example, it was a wasteland. Right, I mean, right. There, were, there, was, there was nothing. <laughs> there, were lot, there, there were lots of parts of the country where there was actually nothing until the last, say, seven or eight years. Yeah, I think that's um, right. So only recently has, you know, has uh, craft beer kind of filled in the country. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, well, we could talk about this for a long time, but I yes. really want to hear about the, uh, the the new project, the Michael Jackson Foundation that you started. It is uh, it got a lot of attention. You just to give a little history uh, of of what you have going on there. You 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 are funding this thing through a GoFundMe, and you currently the the, the foundation currently has four hundred sixteen donations, one hundred sixty nine thousand roughly, a two hundred thousand dollar goal. So the launch, which is a couple months old, it seems to be going very well. Will you tell us what what the idea behind this was and and what it seeks to do? Well, where this pretty much starts in a way was five years ago, I got a phone call from a guy named Dave Infante, who's a writer, and he was writing for Thrillist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he called, oh, okay. Uh, When he called, I was in Slovenia uh, in the vineyards, and he said, Garrett, I want to talk to you about what's going on in craft beer because you're pretty much the only black brewer that... I've seen, and at the time, five years ago, there were not many. And I'm wondering whether craft beer has like some sort of racism problem. You know, why is it that, you know, that we don't see, you know, uh, uh, any black brewers? And, you know, even though Dave seemed like a very nice person, I have to say I became somewhat annoyed. And I said, well, I'm sure you mean well, but that's essentially, that's a pretty stupid question. You know, you're asking the wrong question. You know, have you asked yourself why when you go to your favorite restaurants, there are no black people in the restaurant. There are no black people working as servers. There are none behind the bar as bartenders. There are none in the kitchen, you know, cooking the food. If you find any at all, they'll be the porters and the dishwashers. This is true of boardrooms. It's true essentially of everything in America. It's just that because you're not black, you actually haven't noticed this, which is noticeable to every black person you ever met. Um, And so you need to understand what country you live in because craft beer is part of America and America has problems. And these problems are not in any way unique to beer or to alcoholic beverages or to food. It's everything. And like you need to you know, go, go study America first, and then you can ask me some questions. He wrote the article for Thrillist, and it won the James Beard Award. Mm. Completely missed the point about <laughs> everything. So recently, when I started the foundation, you know, I mentioned this article as a, you know, a starting point, because increasingly over the years, people have been asking me, why don't we see black people in beer bars? Why aren't they at festivals? Why aren't they brewers? The Michael Jackson Fund was started by the American Institute of Wine and Food, Steve Hindy and Tom Potter, you know, and Tom was then a Brooklyn brewery, uh, started it. 
of course, Michael was still with us then. Uh, and it was a fund to give scholarships to brewers. Well, AIWF wound down over the years, and Tom used to run it. And he came to me last year, and he said, Garrett, I would like to finally disperse these funds. We have like $30,000, and uh, it's just been sitting here in Marabund, and we should use this money. And so I would like you to help me administrate you know, these uh, scholarships. Maybe we can give eight scholarships. And what I told Tom was, well, I am definitely interested in doing this, but there's a caveat, which is I'm only interested in doing it if it at least largely is something that helps out people of color. And at first, Tom, you know, pushed back a little bit about, about that. But I said, no, there's, you know, I don't want to put it through a brewing school or a cooking school or whatever else where when you get in there, everybody is going to be of one background. Mm -hmm. You know, there will not be any students available, you know, within a school that might cost $30,000 a year. And so eventually he came around to that and we were going to administrate this $30,000 and I would figure out how to find our candidates. Well, as a whole pandemic thing started up, I had been thinking about maybe this could be a foundation. But frankly, I was going, I, I had a dozen international trips every year. I was traveling constantly. It's extremely busy. And in real life, it probably would not have happened without, you know, the combination of the pandemic and the social moment, which also grows partly out of the pandemic. You know, I think that uh, the current social movements would have happened differently if there hadn't been a pandemic. And so I'm sure somebody will study that at, at great length in the future, like how much these two things coincided with each other. You know, the death of George Floyd and the pandemic at the same time kind of creating space for people to think about these things and, and, and take some action around them. And so, you know, I basically, as the marches were going past my house, started to say, you know, this is the moment to do this. I have the time. I'm not on airplanes all the time. And now is the time to do this. So the foundation, what it does is very streamlined and very simple. Because as I have pointed out uh, in other interviews, I have not had a single African-American applicant for a brewing job in 30 years mm. as brewmaster in either place. I've been around a long time. I've been very visible for a long time. I have newspaper articles going back to the early to mid 90s. I was on Emerald Live in the 90s. I've been on Martha Stewart. I mean, I've been in Jet Magazine. Yeah, you're routinely in the New York Times, so there's that. Routinely in the New York Times. I wrote for the New York Times. And so the idea that I would not be visible, you know, seemed impossible to me. But what I came to discover is that just because you are visible doesn't mean that you're actually doing anything. If anybody had come in front of me and said, hey, I would love a brewing job or I would like your help, I would have helped them but nobody came. Mm -hmm. And so I, I reversed my original thinking, which was that, well, the reason why people weren't coming is because they weren't interested or whatever else, you know, but it's not my fault. And I reversed my thinking and I just said, well, how about this? As a mental exercise, what if it was my fault? How exactly would it end up having been my fault as opposed to somebody else's fault? And so, the answer came pretty quickly. Let's do the math. 
So a place like Brooklyn Brewery that's been around a long time, has very high standards, I'm going to require two to three years of brewing experience. Right. You know, you don't have to, you don't have, to have been in for 10 years, but a couple of years mm-hmm. of brewing experience. You know, if you make a serious error in a brewery of our size, it's not like you're burning the fish in the kitchen on, on, on a Friday night. You're going to kill somebody or you're going to ruin a $75,000 tank of beer. This is not acceptable. You know, we need to have people who really know what they're doing and we have to be sure of it. Well, less than 1% of people working in brew houses in the United States are African-American. And most of them will have gotten in in the last few years. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to require two to three years, I've already removed almost everybody. And now past that, I said, well, two to three years of experience or equivalent coursework. So let's look at the equivalent coursework. Well, I've probably hired about a dozen brewers out of the American Brewers Guild, very good program. It costs $9,000. Short courses like a packaging course through MBAA, uh, $3,000. Master Brewers course for UC Davis, $16,000. Now take the fact that African-Americans have one-tenth the family assets of white Americans, one-tenth, 10% of the assets. And you're looking at, you know, that's not income, but that's assets. So when you take on a $9,000 course, it means that you almost certainly have nothing to put up against it and you go into debt. And in a way that other people don't necessarily have to or have a better opportunity to bounce back from. And so you put those two things together, you know, the requirement of experience or the requirement of having spent large sums of money that African Americans tend not to have. And in fact, it turns out to be my fault. Not on purpose, <laughs> you know, not, not on purpose. And this is the thing that people don't understand often about the idea of anti-racism. Right. You know, anti-racism is an action. You know, it's work. It's not, it's not not being racist. Not being racist doesn't do anything for anybody. It may prevent you from doing damage to people, but that's not the same thing as helping anybody. Helping anybody, advantaging anybody takes work. And it usually costs money. You know, there, you know so the things that prevent people from getting in are those things, they're also psychological. I mean, imagine that every time you wanted a craft beer, you love craft beer, it's great. But every time you wanted to have craft beer, every bar you went to, everyone in there was black, in every one, in every bar, in every city. Right Now, you you might (laughs) say to yourself, oh, well, that wouldn't bother me, that would be fine. But really? Really, really, in every mood that you ever have, that would be fine. Well, that would make you kind of superhuman. Right. You know, people like to see somebody around them that looks something like them, or at very least, if every bar you went into was 100% black, you would get the idea, per, you know, perhaps, that this kind of somehow wasn't for you. Right, right. You know, and by not, not hiring any people behind the bars, by not hiring people in the brew houses and in the tap rooms, you know, you perpetuate this same thing where when you go in there, 
you know, if you're white, you probably don't notice that everyone else there is white. But if you're black, you definitely notice the same way that you would if when you walked in, everyone was black. So, you know, this also keeps people out of the beer scene. They don't want to go to the festivals where they're looked at strangely. So what really brought it home was going to Fresh Fest last year mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh and seeing a couple of thousand black people and Latinos and everybody else, uh, but people of color, thousands of them drinking and geeking out on craft beer. And people were like really emotional because they're like, where have you guys been? It's like, well, we're everywhere. You just don't see us because we don't want to go to the beer bar. <laughs> you know? yeah, where we're not yeah. treated that well and we, you know, we feel strange. Yeah. And so all these things come together to make, you know, the beer scene as we know it. And so if you would like to reverse this situation and make craft beer look and feel like America, it requires work. In our case, the work that we're doing is very simple. In my case, I'm saying that you, you know, need two to three years of experience or you need equivalent coursework. We can't give you the two two to three years of experience, but we can, if you have just normal qualifications, we can send you to brewing school. So, you know, this is what, you know, the work of the MJF is essentially twofold. One, it provides scholarships to people of color for accredited institutions for technical education in brewing and distilling. That's the first part. The second part, which goes hand in hand with it, is that with each scholarship award, we then link the student to a mentor who is a person of color within the industry who is somebody who comes in some way out of a similar background to themselves and provides them with a connection to the industry and someone to talk to. And, you know, when you have a problem or you need something or whatever else, this is your go-to person, you know, because just as you don't see many black people in the beer scene, they don't have people to reach out to. I mean, I would say at this point in the United States, most white Americans know a brewer or somebody who works for a brewery. There are 8,000 breweries. Right. Some, you know, everybody knows somebody. Well, that's <laughs> definitely not true in the black community. Uh-huh. Right? Like none of your family members work for a brewery. None of your friends work for a brewery. Right. So you know, the kind of general segregation of American life produces a lack of access. You know, how do people get hired? They get hired the way people get hired for most jobs, you know, through friends. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I know, I know a guy. You know, I know a guy over here. Oh, you need somebody, you know, to work on the packaging line? Uh, uh, yeah, I know this guy. And yeah. even something as simple as I know a guy provides, you know, a huge proportion of the access. You know, and the same way they figure it out that, you know, not allowing people of color or women or whatever else, you know, on the golf course or in the club or whatever else was a great hindrance to people's careers because these things move through social circles. Right. Um, the same is true of brewing. It's not any different. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of those subtle pieces that people really miss, uh, which is, I, I, I'm so delighted to hear that this is a, uh, you know, a feature of the foundation because it, you can get an education, but you're exactly right. There's, there's got to be these, 
these con this connective tissue because it's the classic old the old boys network you know the women used to talk about and um, we it, it there, there are these layers and layers of institutionalized racism even when it's soft and and unintentional uh, and there are a few white spaces as white as as craft brewing so uh, yeah I mean if, if you think about it I'm sitting here as a black guy who would have loved to I mean I've sent Gambians to brewing school I've sent you know I, I've sent Iraqis to brewing school but these people came in you know through like one guy he he showed up as a forklift driver and was working in the warehouse eventually started working a little bit on the bottling line turned out to be so good at it you know a very highly technical piece of equipment you know we didn't know when he was a truck driver and forklift driver that that Sedu was going to be you know a great packaging guy and so we sent him on the MBAA course eventually and you know he ran our packaging line another guy came to us as a refugee we had refugee agency working with us that provided you know uh, 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 shifts for packaging and one of our guys came in speaking almost no English, refugee from Iraq, you know, and eventually became so great at everything, moved all the packaging line into the cellar and then into the brew house. And we sent him, you know, on the MBA long course to brewing school. Well, you know, black Americans are not refugees. So <laughs> there, you know, I unwittingly did not provide a pathway for black Americans that was being provided in my own brew house for refugees. Now, in my mind, of course, you know, uh, having refugees in, we're doing good work, right? Like we believe in immigration. We want to welcome people to the United States. It's great that we're giving people jobs. And so you just don't notice that you're filtering out people. I mean, I've always had women working, you know, uh, in the brewery and almost always in higher positions. Um, so that has been less of a, uh, you know, of a, of, a, of a blind spot. But, you know, to some extent, this definitely was. It wasn't like I didn't notice at all. It's just that I had never turned, you know, never looked in the mirror about it. I'll put it that way. And I think that most craft brewers have never looked in the mirror about it. Right. You know, they've noticed it maybe for a second, but, you know, it's always somebody else's fault or concern. And so, you know, you find that, same thing in the wine industry, same thing in the bourbon industry. You know, I've been talking to people in various big companies that produce these things. They're like, yep, we got the same problem. You know, we're finding out that 20 or 30% of the people who buy our liquor are, you know, like say high-end bourbon are actually African-American and we have almost no African-American employees. We have no African-American salespeople. We have no African-American uh, distillers. So, you know, we just, they're, they're invisible to us, but they are a big portion of the people. So, you know, we are basically toggling only a couple of things, access and education. And I feel almost 100% confident that this will be effective because, you know, if a person comes, you know, shows up and saying, yeah, I was a rote brewer for a year or so, I knew how to brew, I started as a dishwasher, but I then went behind the bar and then I moved into the brew house and so-and-so taught me how to brew. But, you know, that person doesn't actually know much of anything. They know how to make beer by the method that's been taught to them. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if someone says, okay, we need, uh, you know, we would like the, uh, uh, you know, we want the beer to be drier or we want the beer to be sweeter or we right. want to have color instead, you can't do that, you know, because <laughs> you don't know, you don't even know what's happening in the mash when you do the mash, right? right? You know, you put, you put it in here at this temperature and this consistency and you, co- you, you come back in an hour and you start running off. Well, that's the way you know most brewers in the United States were for a long time. Certainly, even more so in places like England, where right. you never ran to anybody that knew brewing science. So there are a lot of people who might be working. You know, most people of color who are working in a brew house have had no formal education at all, and therefore they may have a job, but they don't have a career. You can't move up. You're not going to become assistant brewmaster or brewmaster on that track. You know, I mean, you could, if you really applied the hell out of yourself, you bought all the books and you read them, you did everything. Um, but that shouldn't be necessary. It's not necessary for everybody else. And so um, we are toggling the thing that we know will work because when this person shows up and says, yeah, I worked a year from the brewery and then I took, you know, the ABG course and then I did an internship, you know, over here, people will be like, oh, hell yeah like we'll take this guy and and that's such an important thing too because you need to create pathways to the top of the profession not just the entry level part of the profession if you want to really radically change things absolutely you know and then those people can become mentors to other people who will come up behind them right you know and so you know uh, the idea that by being there by physically being there and being seen that that is the same as dropping a ladder was what I thought. It turns out that it's simply not true. Um, I wanted it to be true. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, you know, I felt better about it when I thought it was true. Yeah. But it turns out that, you know, um, what is the, uh, you know, the old adage that, uh, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Yeah. Well, you know, I have 30 years of evidence that like what we've been doing is not working. So I'm changing what I'm doing. And I think that uh, we're going to have a great board. We are providing the mentorship to make sure that the thing, the other thing that we're, that we're doing is effective. And then besides that, and this is kind of like the, like the off-label use, if you like, of, uh, you know, of the MJF, is that we will also be and are already becoming a connection center. So if you come to us and you're like, I want to get into whatever, I want to be a Cicerone, I want to do this, I want to do that, and it doesn't fall within this narrow scope of what the MJF actually does as its mission, that doesn't mean that we're not going to help you. We're just going to find another pathway for you and then try to connect you to the people as directly as possible who will help you along your way. So that is the other part, you know, and like a lot of prescription drugs that may be, you know, used for other things beside what they were originally for, I think the MJF will be kind of like that. It will have, you know, a number of uses to people that are not in the original mission. I don't remember who it was that said it was very funny that, uh, you know, Q-tips are like the only, the only product that you'll see out there which is used almost 100% for exactly the thing they tell you not to do with it. Right, of course. (laughs) 
And I have a feeling that like in a certain way, the MJF is going to end up being like that, that like 75% of our actual work will actually not be the mission. Uh, it'll be all the other little things that really involve sending people emails and whatever else. But the thing is that it's important to separate that from the thing that costs money. Right, right. Um, because we're asking for people's contributions. You know, I want there to be a very clear and clean idea of what we're going to do with the money they've given us. And so, you know, the mission will remain super tight, but that doesn't mean that our intentions are not broader. And we should do a little business here and say that the website is themjf.org, and there is a link there to the GoFundMe site where you can make a donation. It's very easy. I made one last week, so uh, you uh, should and go on there. we greatly appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> you should definitely no, go on there and help out. The, I mean, we, we've, had, we've had donations ranging from $10 to $40,000 right. uh, know, through the site. Now, there are other ways to donate. People have sent checks you know, et cetera, you know, GoFundMe charity, which is separate from the regular GoFundMe, uh, you know, is itself a 501c3. So it automatically turns out all the tax receipts and all those other goodies um, and helps provide a social media platform for this to happen. But I mean, for like larger amounts that are not going to move for some reason through the GoFundMe, you know, we have various uh, other, you know, uh, pathways for, you know, for people who, you know, don't want to take that one. But, you know, we, we're building the website out into something which will eventually become, you know, an information center. You know, we'll have stories on there eventually of people who've been through the programs that we've sent them on, you know, and people will be able to follow, you know, what the work uh, of the organization is. Uh, we're right in the middle of standing up the board right now. And, you know, by uh, the late fall, we should be in the application process. You know, and uh, I am expectant that by the end of the first quarter, we'll start of, of next year, we'll start sending people out, you know, on their courses. That is fantastic. Uh, that I think I'm, I'm so happy to shed some light on this and I really hope people check it out. Uh, and it, it, it is, you're right, it's a great way for uh, to be kind of the, the spotlight for these activities. So it's a great place to start. It's probably not the place, the only place in the world, but um, it's, it gives people a place to start. And that's really incredibly valuable right now. Yeah. I mean, there are people who've been out here doing this work for, you know, for years, really. Right. I mean, in a certain way, I just showed up. I mean, I've been in brewing for a long time, but I haven't been doing this. I'm not like Dr. J. Nickel Beckham, who's been doing you know, this kind of work for years. The usefulness of being me is that everyone will take my phone call. That's right. Right. I've been around for a long time. I'm a prince of the church, you know, You're, in the food yeah. world. <laughs> That's and, right. You're and the guy who's so, on TV. <laughs> yeah, I'm the guy on TV. So, you know, I can bring things to bear that other people are not going to be able to. And, you know, really, that's the only thing that makes me useful, you know, which is why. Uh, I put in the original bylaws, you know, for the MJF that, you know, I will serve a single term, you know, as chairman of five years, and then I will not, uh, you know, by bylaws, I will not serve again. Ah, oh, interesting. You know, so uh, five years and time's up, you know, which means that, you know, th which will force me That's to stand up an organization which does not need me. That's right. Uh, 
which and, should be and, the goal. And force you to find those next that next group who will, who will take exactly. the leadership. Yeah. Because I sure as hell don't want to build this and see it fall apart in the future. What I want to see is people, you know, younger, smarter, faster than me <laughs> running the thing in, 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 in five or six years, which is the way a proper foundation will be built. You know, I'm not going to be sitting here like yes or Arafat, you know, for 15 years past my useful date, um, you know, getting in the way of people who are actually trying to get in there and, and do this stuff. So, you know, I'm using the cultural currency that I have, you know, to be useful in the moment that I can be useful, then I will get the hell out of the way and let other people get on with it. Well, this is very uh, uh, exciting and heartening. This 2020, I got to say, has not been my favorite year uh, in the world. <laughs> no. But this is this is a little bit of a bright spot um, that maybe <laughs> maybe we can take some heart in uh, this news in 2020 at least. Hey, look, we got to take heart in whatever news that we can get. And you know, I I have had to face the fact that I am probably during the pandemic not going to lose weight. I have still not learned to speak fluent French or any other languages. Um, you know, there are lots of things that I might have hoped to do that I'm probably not going to end up doing. Uh, so I'm particularly glad then that I can, you know, do this. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, in, in, in 20 or 30 years, if, you know, if, if this is the main thing that people remember me for, you know, in brewing, I hope to still be here in 20 or 30 years, but, you know, um, <laughs> then if this is really the thing, then I would be very happy with that. I think this is a important work and I'm looking forward to making it effective. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that this would be an extraordinary legacy. So I, I hope you're here in 30 years and I hope that the MJF Foundation is, uh, or the MJ Foundation is uh, a smashing success and a great part of your legacy. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I appreciate it and, and, and uh, appreciate your, uh, willingness to turn a spotlight on it. So, so thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Garrett Oliver. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you and uh, best of luck with this foundation and everything you're doing. Best of luck to, to you, Jeff. Uh, you know, we will all see this through to the other side. <laughs> and I, and I hope we, I hope we all uh, become uh, effective anti-racists and help do our part, whether that's donating or, uh, uh, helping uh, brewers find these these sources or whatever it is. So yeah, let's let's all uh, join in together. You know, there are a great many paths to the goal. So uh, you know, this is this is one. But you know, uh, even through our website, you're going to see a lot more, and you already are seeing a lot more. So you know, the 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 the, the answer to to doing something is to do something. Like That's whatever right. it is, go do something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's row in the same direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks very much. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, right. And uh, be well. You too. Ciao. And once again, a big thanks to Garrett uh, for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, it was really uh, gracious of him to spend time with two little dudes <laughs> podcasting from uh, their respective homes. Uh, we really appreciate it. So, uh, yeah. So uh, thank you, Garrett, and uh, Godspeed. And now we get to turn to the mailbag. Which these days, by the way, isn't empty. I mean, it's not just empty, but it's not just not empty, but it's, uh, uh, we're getting some good, good mail back. <laughs> well, and lengthily said. 
<laughs> well, it always kind of surprises me. Now you just attach these things to the end. It's a separate attachment that comes, and and there's a lot. So it's uh, true. I know. And thank you to the listeners for uh, reaching out. It really is a balm to us to have something in there, not not beg for some random comment. Yeah. Due to time constraints, we'll probably just do a couple today, and then we'll do a few more uh, next week, and then whatever else comes in. So uh, the first one. Uh, very dear to our hearts, <laughs> comes comes to us via Twitter. Uh, Casket Beer says this. I've been meaning to say this for a very long time. The music for your news segment is perfect. Don't ever change it. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We The story behind that is Patrick, at one point we were doing the news and Patrick said, you know, we need a, mu- a music cue. And so I went online and found three, I think three or four uh, different ones, uh, you know, one or two that were pretty good. And then they got more and more cheesy, including the one that I threw in as a joke, which is the one we now use. And Patrick said, oh, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The cheesiest one was the best. I was thinking, you know, how they like the breaking news. So I think we did that for a while, right? Uh, with our own uh, uh, voices, maybe, maybe not. Yes, yes. You, you, I think you did that. If memory serves. <laughs> uh, and so you went out to look for real music because you probably couldn't stand me doing that anymore. Uh, and yes. And this one was something about like football, right? This, the, 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 the little audio track you picked. Yeah, there were these public domain ones and they had names like uh, a sports intro or news intro. And I think you're right. I think this one was like sports intro. I think this is like football or something. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Casket Beer. We are very proud. Very Indeed. Proud. Very proud. <laughs> Next one it comes from Rodney Carter, who says, I am riding from Kingston, Ontario, which is 100 kilometers to the south of Smith's Falls on the other end of the Rideau Rito. Canal. Rito, thank you, where Patrick's family is from. And in response to his comment about milk in Canada, I am happy to confirm that it is still sold in bags here, although it is mostly prevalent in Ontario and Quebec. Ah. The reason for this is that when Canada officially went from the imperial to metric system, it was cost effective to modify packaging machines that fill bags. The plastic technology was newly introduced at the time and very difficult to retrofit the equipment to fill the cartons or jugs that had previously replaced bottles. There may be benefits to the bags. Less plastic is used compared to jugs, possibility of horizontal storage and smaller amounts opened at one time, et cetera. So it has remained the prevalent container here. Aha. So that well, that actually answers two questions, uh, which is one, yes, they still exist. So uh, just to, uh, I think there may be one, there may be one liter bags. They're not huge, they're, but they're just like a plastic sealed bag with milk in it. And you have to have a little, pitcher container that you stick the bag in and then you clip the corner of the bag and then you pour it from there. Uh, do they do they make special pitchers for the bags now? Yes. Yeah. They always did. You, they're little plastic pitchers. You have to have one really because there's no way to store it. Otherwise, it'll just fall over and leak. So yeah, right. <laughs> you have to have one of these pitchers. But then he's right. The, they're actually quite uh, space efficient. You just buy a bag of bags. As I recall, they used to come in threes, but he can uh, confirm or deny. And, that's right. Uh, we should definitely have this conversation about weird bags in Canada go on for several more podcasts. So please, Rodney, let us know. Absolutely. Keep, keep, yeah, keep it going. We can we can discuss the, <laughs> the, the pros and cons of this. But anyway, my, my quick point is that I don't uh, uh, visit Ontario much anymore. In fact, the last time I visited was when I was still in graduate school in, in, uh, in Ithaca because it's not that far away. But I do visit British Columbia a lot and I haven't seen 
milk in bags there. And now I understand that that's sort of a thing in Ontario and Quebec, but not so much maybe in Western Canada. So a regional thing. Mystery solved. So thank you. you Thank you very much, Rodney. Um, (laughs) The reason I don't visit uh, is that the people, my relatives have, uh, my, my closest relatives have passed away and the property that I used to go and spend summers on the lake is now no longer in the family. So it's sad and I don't get there anymore. So I miss Ontario. You know, uh, in, in these COVID times, I am reminded that one of the things I love most about travel is uh, seeing weird things uh, The you know, the, the quotidian uh, yeah. life uh, of other people that seems weird because, because they're doing things like putting milk in, in bags. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I love that stuff. And it's one of the reasons I love to travel is like, oh my God, look at this. You know, when you go to the when you're in Germany and you go to the, the beer aisle and they're all in crates, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, so here we are in COVID and all I can do is see our normal, what, what looks like our normal way of life here in Oregon and pine to be back uh, somewhere else. Incidentally, uh, it was one year ago that I was traveling through Europe and on Facebook, I'm getting all these memories showing me gorgeous photos of, um, I think I was in uh, Belgium uh, uh, exactly a year ago. So I miss travel. Yeah, I miss travel a lot. Excuse me. I'm I'm uh, I'm letting the cat in the window because apparently the cat has chosen my son's window to come in. So uh, he's, he's he's very wet now. I understand why he's a little desperate to get in. Uh, yeah, I miss travel a lot um, uh, too. That's probably the thing I miss most. In fact, had to cancel summer travel plans, and that really sucked. Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, <laughs> with that with that uplifting note, uh, we should probably bring this pod to the clo- to a close. Uh, once again, like to thank uh, Garrett Oliver for joining us, uh, spending time. He's a busy man, and to uh, take some time for us was really special, and we appreciate it. So, if your words going out, please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us five stars, please. Ooh, you're a little slow on that. That helps other listeners find the show. We love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at beervana. And Patrick tweets at beeronomics, and my timing was perfect, so... <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I don't have... We don't... We, don't, we didn't... We didn't... Uh, we didn't have a beverage today, so I'll just have to say cheers and Godspeed to you, Jeff. Yes, I'll conjure up a Brooklyn lager in my mind and uh, raise it to you. Yes, yeah, the label is very distinctive, and I can I can imagine it now. The the script B. So, indeed, indeed. So, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.